0: I was super allergic to them,
1: though. <laughs> what,
2: rabbits?
0: So you're super allergic to
2: rabbits?
1: Hey I am
3: super
0: allergic to rabbits. Hello, Steven.
2: What's
1: up, oh.
3: Steven? Hey. Hey, Erica. Hey.
2: I was just telling Erica, this oh, is, I just moved into a new home and uh, everything. It's blurry. Is, it's a blurry place, huh? <laughs> so you can't see his unmade bed in the background. <laughs> 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 it's
1: you like know, there's a spot. Camera on you. <laughs>
2: yep. Joe Lansdale and I were talking and he said that uh you're one of his best friends and mm-hmm. you I get it, man. You two are fucking funny. When are you two writing a book together? <laughs>
3: <laughs> you know, we've talked about it before. We just never got around to it, man. To writing a story or something anyway. Obviously,
2: obviously goes for you too, Erica. Um, if there's anything brought up that you guys want cut, let me know. No questions asked. It is cut. I oh, hey, my teeth. <laughs> you
0: have to wear those and, and answer every question with those in, so it's just forty-five minutes of unintelligible garble.
1: I just need elf ears if I'm going to outdo you, Stephen. Just like a giant pair of Vulcan. Yeah, that'd be a, yeah,
0: yeah, that'd be, tall that'd be exceptional yeah. for audio listeners too, who just have no idea why they can't understand yeah. a damn word you say.
2: welcome to dead headspace i'm your host patrick r mcdonough before i introduce brennan i'm just gonna say candace unfortunately couldn't be here today she'll be here next week um reason being she contracted covid she specifically told me that if she was just sick she'd be here so (laughs) I uh, just wanted to say, Stephen. She was super excited to talk to you. Hopefully, there's a next time, and uh, she yep. will definitely be a part of that. Um, cool. You guys know, listeners. You guys know my my friend, Brennan Lafaro. Say hello, Brennan. Hello, everybody. And we got our guest host, Erica T. Worth. Say hello, Erica. Hello. And for all our fellow horror nerds, you this guy needs no introduction, but I'm going to introduce him anyways. Stephen Graham Jones. Say hello. Hello. And we're just gonna dive into what got you into horror. After he answers that, Brennan or Erica, take the take the lead. What got me into horror, man? That's a what got me into horror.
3: Um, what got me into horror? The first horror novel I ever read was Whitley Strieber's Wolfen. You know, and I was probably eleven or twelve. I'm not sure about that. And I really feel like. Everything I write, I'm trying to rewrite Wolfen. You know, there's those chapters that are from the the grandfather wolf's point of view and his voice, and those just got into my writer DNA forever and ever. And also, right around that same time, I saw my first horror movie, which was The Howling, and that's also deep in my DNA. And so it's no surprise that I finally worked up the nerve to do Mongols. You know,
0: I was gonna say I was sensing a theme there.
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Man. That's interesting. That's what- Sorry, go ahead, Bernie.
0: No, I was just going to say that's really interesting because uh, this is, if my count's anywhere near right, something around episode 210 that we've recorded. And you get a lot of, you know, I read Stephen King. I read uh, Dean Koontz, I read this person, that person. Nobody's ever mentioned Whitley Stryber before. Um, hmm. I'm very curious what drew you to that book.
3: Um, I don't have the paperback here. I've got it somewhere. But it was the cover, man. There was a mass, mass paper, mass market cover that is... Almost all black, but it's got those two wolf eyes like slanting down, and you can see the the barest suggestion of the muzzle or something. And man, I was hooked. I could not put that book. I I couldn't have not read that book. I think, and I have no idea where I got it because I'm I'm not saying like I didn't live in a household where books were out of bounds or anything, but um, we didn't have them around either. You know, so I don't know where in the world I stumbled onto this book.
0: But then, you know, going back to that theme, what Mm. do you think, what do you think it is about werewolves that really just kind of draws
3: you in? Um, I think it was that age for me, you know, when you're 11, 12, 13, you're changing and you, 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 you realize you're changing and I didn't really have the guidance to tell me what I might be changing into. So I thought maybe it's elective, you know, (laughs) and so I started casting about and, and in West Texas. Being a vampire it's instant death because there's no shade, you know. So a werewolf, I could run around and eat rabbits and jump fences and have fun all the time. And so, of course, I want to be a werewolf. And nobody wants to be a mummy, you know, and mermaid. You wouldn't last 10 minutes being a mermaid in West Texas. So of, of all the creatures, werewolf was pretty much all I could do.
0: I did not expect process of elimination to be part of that <laughs> answer, but brilliant. <laughs> Erica, would you like to jump in?
1: Yeah, I always love Stephen's answers because like <laughs> they're the cool answers, you know, whereas I'm like, I, all I remember is that I have this extremely distinct memory. I went into um, like a library and I was like telling the librarian, I, I just want something about a girl and a ghost. I just remember that very distinctly, you know. Um, but, you know, otherwise, I'm not even sure what got me into it. My answer would otherwise be Stephen King. But I think oh. what I'm always interested in is the final girl thing right? Because there's so much debate about this. Like, Grady does it, you do it. I remember Cynthia Plyo saying, well, you know, why does it have to be a final girl? Could it be a final mm-hmm. guy? Mm-hmm. Or couldn't the murderer be a woman? I think those are all legitimate questions. But mm-hmm. I think what I'm curious about is, what about the final girl kind of compels you, Stephen, or at least in this, like, you know, trilogy? Yeah.
3: Um, I think final girls are just the best possible model for us for how to push back against the bullies in our lives, you know, be it somebody in a parking garage who is shadowing us, be it a boss we don't like, be it a boyfriend, girlfriend, you know, that we're in a relationship with Um, all through through all of our interactions in the world, there's always going to be bullies. You know, that's what Jason Voorhees is. That's what Michael Myers is. That's what Freddy Krueger is. They, They try to exert their power over you and terrorize you and final girls get terrorized. They get chased, they scream, they fall down when they run away, all those things but there comes a point where they're like enough is enough and they turn around and they fight and they transform into their pure selves you know and i think if we can identify enough with their story we can understand that we have that inside ourselves as well and we can also push back and try to make things better
1: i love that actually i uh i kind of would like a scenario where it's not metaphoric i would actually like to be able to transform into a werewolf just oh, actually <laughs> that be like, and then it just, then they would be quiet then, you know? I love that because a lot of people see it as like the final girl's a victim and, you know, we're putting Mm -hmm. women in this victim space, but I actually Mm -hmm. think you're right. I feel that you and Grady um, Hendricks are doing Mm -hmm. it in a way that I can celebrate, like, Mm -hmm. you know, because women do end up cornered like a lot of us, right? And so Mm -hmm. they do fight back and they do survive and they do survive from, you know, their physical skills, their mental skills. So yeah, I like that a lot.
3: Yeah, and and of course, like like you were saying, final girl is it's more of a character slot than like a gender identity or something because you have a lot of final boys too. I mean, they're final girls, but they're boys, and it, it doesn't matter, you know. Um, I think the reason we see a lot more women being final girls than we do men being final girls is, um, what's what's that? There's that movie from, I want to say eighty three by, Lamberto Baba, Blade in the Dark. I think it's called Blade in the Dark. It's about a musician who goes to a remote estate, probably in Italy, I'm not sure, to work on a score or something. And and of course he's menaced, you know, every waking hour by some killer who's killing gardeners and doing all kinds of stuff. And finally he confronts that killer. The killer is a woman. And and it turns out when she's unmasked and they're in the living room, I think, um, he like outsizes her by, I don't know, eight inches or something. And she comes at him and he just like knocks her down, you know? And um and that that like um disparity I guess in just I don't know size strength something like that is why I think most final girls are women because when they do that thing where they stop turn around pick up the machete and go after the killer in the mask then um they're going to get something that outsizes them outmuscles them outmeans them and and all just is more of a killer than they are, but that doesn't matter. They're gonna come at them anyways, you know? And um and I'm not saying that, that every story with the final boy is broken by any means, but um it just presents a different set of like story problems that you have to navigate around and, and make work, you know? Um but I mean I don't mean to say that that um women are less good fighters or anything like that. You know, I don't have, but um but in the in that blade in the dark, the final girl, the guy in the final girl role does actually outsize his attacker, his bully, his slasher, you know. And it, it was a weirdness. You never see that. Like Jason is never um shorter than whoever he whoever he's killing. You know? He's
2: not <laughs> no. like Andre
3: the Giant with a machine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Especially yeah. especially if it's Rob Zombies, Michael Myers, you know.
2: <laughs> I like Rob Zombie. Yeah. Oh yeah. That dude's from Haverhill originally. Shout out really? to him. Shout out to our home state, Brian. Oh, man. Yeah, his parents still lived. Well, actually, that was said to me very long time ago. Shit, time flies. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. They may they
0: have moved. Who knows? They
2: <laughs> might have. So I got Rob Zombie.
3: Rob Zombie puts on a good show, too. I saw him in concert a few I years bet. ago. He's really good, man.
2: Yeah, he he's just I, I like his new shit, I like his old shit. Mm-hmm, he mm-hmm. just has a different style. Um, yeah. I think Floyd of heavy metal, I said it. Uh <laughs> Where can, where can people if at all possible buy your shirt? And for listeners This one? Yeah. Yeah. Um ideally D. ideally
3: ideally from Greg Green and I think he sells them through Etsy and the URL is jade shirt.com, but I think he just had to repurchase a certificate or something for that. So I'm not certain at the moment we're recording this if the if that URL, that domain name is live. Uh, a few days ago, it wasn't live, but um, yeah, you know how the shirt bots are. It, whenever a shirt is posted and starts selling, then all the bots replicate it all across the internet. You can buy it anywhere. So that's kind of how the shirt is now, but Greg Green and he's the one who originated the idea and a guy named um, Ragosta, is it uh, jason ragosta he does he he did the art and um so i mean uh hopefully everybody buys from from him such that the money goes the right place you know
2: yeah i love that shirt definitely fits the aesthetic that you're trying to create um yeah you know before we dive into anything else for jay daniels daniel krauss we talked to him last week he specifically Mm -hmm. said to us to tell you hi and he Mm -hmm. let us know that you were one of the first um actually he said the first to read whale fall uh yeah I'm not gonna ask you to tell us about the story but how to make you feel and how are you the first to read it man that's awesome he he just needed he
3: he just I don't know how I don't know why I was first I don't know I mean um maybe I was just um maybe he sent it to fifty people and I just happened to be the first to read it you know I don't, I don't even know for sure hmm. I never never asked him but um no that novel blows me away whale fall I mean number one the research but yeah. No, really, to tell you the truth, the research probably out number three, number one, the story. You know, how much I engage and invest with this character, with his mm-hmm. um his survival and his kind of emotional struggles, you know, his his processing through the grief of his of his father, losing his father. And um still, as much as I loved all that once I got to the ending and what happens at the ending that just kind of um, solidified for me that this is an amazing novel that he pulled it off, you know, cause it, there's so many wrong ways to end that that particular type of story. And, and, and Daniel, he, he fell into none of those traps. He found the elegant way out, you know, not like literally out of the, the whale's stomach. He found the elegant, elegant way out of the story, you know?
2: Absolutely. Brennan, I feel like you got something to say.
0: Yeah. Um. First of all, you're right on, but jumping back to, Uh, jade daniels in the trilogy Uh, you know we've been talking for like 10 minutes and you've already Mm -hmm. demonstrated this encyclopedic knowledge of slasher stuff Mm -hmm. and just like the books the books are just well that's (laughs) that's where i'm going with this is the books are just (laughs) dripping with all these easter eggs and just everything that's like trapped inside that head so i'm curious you know when you're writing these what kind of consideration do you put into uh i guess balancing references and Easter eggs with, you know, telling the coherent story and how that relates to just kind of Jade's mastery of the the genre. Yeah.
3: Well I mean first of all, you know, Jade she found Bay of Blood in that bargain bin when she was in junior high. And um I'm so lucky that she found a like a proto slasher because if she would have found a tennis racket, then I'd be screwed because I don't know nothing about tennis. You know? So I'm <laughs> I'm really happy that what she's into is what I'm into. You know, there's, um, I say happy, like it's luck there's probably a little shaping going on, but, um, <laughs> but, um, well, I guess the trick with all the, like, I don't know, title drops and trivia and, you know, just all that kind of slasher key stuff is that, um, yes, I want to put it in there for sure. Cause that's Jade's compulsion. It's her fascination. It's how it's her lens by which she makes sense of the world. But also I don't want to rig it such that if you don't get this, little bit of trivia, this in joke, whatever, that you're not let into the cool kids club, you know, that's the wrong way to build a story, I think. So that's the hard balancing act with all that. And every once in a while, I do have to like lean into a bit of trivia for like a dramatic turn in a scene. And when I have to do that, I try to set it up earlier such that even if the reader has never seen final exam or night school, I have already fed them what they need to know to understand this dramatic turn that's coming, you know.
0: Yeah, that's, that's yeah, absolutely. Smart. And you said balance and that's absolutely mm-hmm. it. Uh all right. What is your opinion on jaws as a slasher?
3: <laughs> I don't know. I don't really agree that it's a slasher. Jade Jade completely is invested in that it's a slasher. And but um I love jaws. I don't mean to take anything away from jaws, but um is it a slasher? You know, I, I just wrote another article for um Fangoria for that slasher nation I do talking about um like the minimum threshold for something to be a slasher. And what I realized through writing this little, I don't know if you call it an essay, a col- I guess it's a column, that's what it is, um, is that it all hinges on the reveal, you know, the reveal of the killer's motivations. And in Jaws, there is no reveal of this shark's motivations. Um, although I, have, I do have a little article out there, where did it run? I don't remember where it ran, maybe Lit Reactor or somewhere talking about Giles's motivations. So if 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 that was ever dramatized, if anybody does a cut of the film where they sneak it in, then it could probably count as a slasher. And uh, that piece I wrote, I suggested that um, that story that Quent tells about the Indianapolis going down and all those sharks coming and feeding on everybody, that famous monologue he delivers, that um, they were, of course, delivering the bombs, you know, to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And... Um, back then, you know, in the 40s, we probably didn't know about how to contain radiation as well as we do now, and we're we're still not perfect with it. I I suspect that there was, um, when that ship foundered, that there was some radiation that leaked out into the water, and there was a whole lot of sharks in the water, and I suggest that maybe one of those sharks got irradiated, and it remembers Quint, and it comes and finds him over um, in Amity, you know? (laughs)
2: Dude, that's like a Chuck Palahniuk level um, study. <laughs> he has a study. I just gotta tell you, because it's to me, it's relatable. He, mm-hmm. when we talked to him, he he was because we love Rosemary's Baby, uh-huh. so to say, and we were talking about that book, and he said that I believe Ira Levin's real message, because back, uh, what was that the 50s
3: the 60s uh Rosemary's baby under the movie is like like 68 right so the book i would guess the book was i don't know when it was i guess 65
2: but i don't even know yeah it sounds about right yeah. but he yeah. said it was i'm gonna mess up the name was it thymolidamide Thib- a oh, okay a yeah. yeah 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 so he said instead of for listeners that didn't hear that episode it's it's just a medicine that women would take and mm-hmm. what, what was it for abortions
0: I got the name. The rest is on you. It was something, <laughs> it
2: was something like that. Instead of yeah. giving birth to the, to the devil um, that mm-hmm. replaced the, the medicine that Ira Levin was um, masking it with. And yeah. that all that to say is you, you have this, uh, what this, this um, studious way of looking at work and it, you can tell by your writing too. You talk mm-hmm. about Daniel's research. Well, mm-hmm. I know you love it. So, that doesn't change the fact that it's research. You put shit mm-hmm. in there. That not mm-hmm. most people can write that. So that's all I wanted to say. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting. Oh, well, thank you. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, I think really. Um,
3: I feel like I was trained to always look for the gossamer tendrils connecting everything. If that makes sense, you know. And I feel like they're always there if you just look long enough. If you if you like part the curtains enough, then you can you can see that this actually comes from that, and this is. Meant to be that, and you, you can just follow it back to you know, you can Kevin Bacon everything, it seems like you know,
2: <laughs> <laughs> the tremor's joke. No, Ken, <laughs> yeah, yeah,
3: yeah.
2: but um, but uh, you know, really a
3: transformative moment for me was um, probably 95 96 when VH1's pop up video came around. Do you remember pop up video?
2: I do, yeah, I, I don't
3: like, actually. Yeah, like they play, they play like a Spice Girls video, and they have these little like. I mean, it looks like it oh. looks like the me- the messages that come up in your iPhone, you know, like these yeah. little and 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 it me. says it says all these little little trivia things behind the scenes that you would have no way of knowing if you weren't if you didn't have that like layer of trivia on top of the video and and I you know I inhaled every one of those and a lot of them are on YouTube. I still watch them. And they just make me intensely happy. And you know, then not long after that, I uh, fell right into Infinite Jest with all those footnotes, which is like the deepest possible rabbit holes, you know? And, um, and I read that the same, I read infinite jest in the same two weeks. I read Pensions, Mason and Dixon, you know, and it, it does rabbit holing in a completely different way. It's got mechanical invisible ducks and all kinds of crazy stuff. And, um, I feel like that, and that's also the year screen came out, you know, 96. Um, and uh, you got Billy quoting psycho and and all this stuff and quoting the exorcist. And I feel like just all of that, um, lodged in me in a way that left me never the same, you know, if, if it make, if that makes sense,
2: Erica, jump in.
1: Yeah. I' say it's interesting because, um, I mean, it's, I know it's one of these like academic words, but in some ways, right. You're talking about postmodernist. But what's interesting is that, I, and I always find this kind of compelling about screaming, I don't know if it's the moment or it's just the, the writing. But if you're talking about David Foster Wallace, right, you can't call that guy an organic writer. And this, like, mm-hmm. there was an interview I remember reading uh, or listening to uh, of his, and he was talking about his tennis coach. And his tennis coach kept being like, you can't get the ball right because you've got a bad head kit. And he's like, I'm like that with fiction. I just can't. I can't just do the natural structured thing. Right. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. then again, if you read his essays, he's pretty easy. I honestly think in some ways, like people like Roxanne Gay are kind of, they owe him because he pioneered that research uh-huh, uh-huh. that you're talking about, plus, you know, personal and he blended uh-huh. it so seamless and in uh-huh. such a structured way. Uh-huh. But Scream is extremely organic. It's fun, it's punchy, it's got the uh-huh. traditional Hollywood art, and yet yep. it's completely postmodern. So it's kind of interesting because I think a lot of people find like postmodern tactics, like you're talking about, or techniques really off-putting but for Mm -hmm. example your books do that and people are like hell yes i love Mm -hmm. jade i love the slasher i'm totally into Mm -hmm. it so Mm -hmm. i don't know i don't know what i guess the question is what makes it i hate this word but what makes it palatable or not Mm -hmm. what makes somebody like oh this is fun to consume versus oh it's interrupting my my you know what i mean my natural consumption of this thing
3: yeah no yeah that's a good that's a good question and a good way to ask it um i to me, the the if there is a like a secret, then it's it's a Stephen King secret. Really, it's get the audience, get the reader engaged enough with the protagonist, invested enough in the outcome of their of their arc that um everything else is just muscle on a skeleton, you know. But they 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 fall in love with um I don't know Stu Redmond from The Stand or whatever whatever it is, you know, and and they believe in that character enough that everything that goes with that character, they also love, you know, because to they, they they don't push back against that stuff because that would be pushing back against the character. And you, it, in my, like the first time I stumbled into a character like that for, in my books that, I, that I've written is probably, let me think probably Darren from Mongrels. He's like, peop, a lot of people fell for Darren and um, he, Darren is, he's, he's fun. I, I can write Darren's in all my books, but I don't, I don't want to do that. Cause you can't, if if you can do something, you should not do it. You should do other things. I think, <laughs> you know, you should work out all your muscles. But um, um, um I don't know. You just to me you luck into those characters. And when I say luck into those characters, it's like you pick the right pieces from the people in your life and construct them into that character, basically. That's what I do, anyways. Like like Darren, and I know I know the if you cut them into a pie chart, I can assign people in my life to each of those pieces of pie you know and um and jade jade is she has a lot less pie pieces just as big of a pie but she's got like um two or three pie pieces and i'm probably 40 percent of her you know
1: well in a word too she's tremendously sympathetic because you're right the Mm -hmm. stephen king trick and the stephen graham jones trick is Mm -hmm. you know creating a complex character but you know one Mm -hmm. who like has emotional stuff going on that you Mm -hmm. know to be uh-huh. like, is at stake, but also like uh-huh. makes you feel sorry for them, makes you relate to them, you know. And uh-huh. so yeah, those uh-huh. are definitely I think that makes a lot of sense, you uh-huh. know.
3: Yeah, it's it's tricky. Um it's yeah, it's, it's hard to ride that line because, of course, you can always set up a character to where everybody's going to feel sorry for them. Like John Wick, they killed his puppy. Of course, we're on his side. You know, you can do those kind of tricks real easy. But the I think the reader gets really jaded to that quickly, you know, so you've got to um, kind of blind, blindside them with it or ambush them with it in some way, I think. I don't know. I mean, I'll never have figured it out. what I always feel like with... Um, writing tech techniques with like tricks that I learned to get across stories and novels is that, that I have a cup, you know, and I've been filling it with little tricks and techniques, my whole, ever since I started writing and, um, But the trick is it can only hold so much. And there's like actually 15 cups worth of techniques and tricks. And so when I pour one trick in, something else splashes out. So I'm always having to relearn stuff. Like I wish I could do some stuff like I did back in Leadfeather in 2007, but I can't write like that anymore. I can't write like the bird is gone from 2003. I wish I could, but that stuff is splashed out of my cup. And I've got different tricks in my cup now, you know? And to me, that's what a writing career is. It's just keeping your cup full and being satisfied with the fact that it's going to have different stuff in it from year to year you know
1: yeah yeah I think that's a lot of sense And uh-huh. you know what I like about Jade I know she's kind of evolved, but I guess uh-huh. what makes her not just like you know like you know oh not you know tick're sympathetic with her because of like what's happening in her home life she's annoying. she's wonderfully uh-huh. annoying. Uh-huh. You know? uh-huh. First, like she was like hey guys i know i just bumped into you and you're strangers but i'd like to tell you about these horror movies and they're like <laughs> great you know and you're like you're surrounded by adult men jade maybe you should uh not do that and really you're just more like then in the end you're just annoyed with them but you kind of like her anyway you know <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah
2: yeah you know i think I, that, that
3: that scene you're talking about from early in my heart is a chainsaw I was at a party when I was about 20 or 19 in Dallas at a department complex, and I was out in the parking lot, and some dude came up to me just randomly in the parking lot, and he was messed up on like 48 different chemicals, and I think this was like his third or fourth day awake, and he just started spewing all these facts on me, and I wasn't that fascinated, but I was compelled to listen at the same time, you know, and I think that's where that scene comes from.
1: And that was probably my cousin, so... <laughs> <laughs>
2: Now, I got a question for you you two, and Brendan, please jump in as well. I don't know what the answer is. I don't think anyone Hmm. does. But if Wes Craven wasn't behind Scream, the first one, do you guys Hmm. think that it would be this powerful for this song? Because I know that, like the Drew Barrymore chase scene, I know in the script it just said something as vague as Ghostface Chases, whatever the girl's name was, but... That's where you add the ma- where West Craven adds his magic. So I'm wondering. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I yeah. don't know what the fuck you're gonna say, Stephen, but I feel like I'm gonna be like. <laughs> well, I don't want to, Erica. Do you, I don't want to cut you off. Do you have something? Or...
3: No, no I
1: think just I instinct. No way. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's the yeah. right it's the structure, and the characters and the mask, but it's the mm-hmm. writing that makes it. You know. Mm.
3: Yeah, like for me, as far as directors go there's no one, there was never, there's never been anyone better in a tight hallway than Wes Craven. You know, he can give you tension like in what's that movie, red eye, you know, that thriller, he does tension so well in that plane. Um, every one of his films, the way he um, positions the camera towards tension is um, it's, I want to say it's instinctual, but of course he learned it over many tries and many failures, but um um the closest I've seen to having that ability with a camera is, um, Lee Janiak. actually, she, she has a really good neck for, for how to move when people are running, I guess, you know, but, um, but yeah, like in, in the script for scream too, um, Kevin Williamson says, West does some scary shit here. That's, you know, <laughs> and that, he lets West, like West Craven go for eight or 10 pages of a chase scene. And, and yeah, that kind of stuff is amazing. But, um, no, I don't think Scream would have hit like it did had Wes Craven not been at the helm at all. And um the and a big part of that would have been because the slasher was like functionally dead in 96 or 95 when they were shooting, anyways. And well, I say 95. This it came out on Christmas Day, didn't it? In 96. I'm not sure the dates when they shot that. They could have been shooting into the spring of ninety six, I guess. But um mm. but anyways, um and I think that another director would have fallen into the trap of, we need to replicate the '80s slashers, the golden age slashers, and we need to do that formula again, just with higher production values, and you know TV, all these TV actors that we've pulled together, and which is to say, there probably would have been. Um, nudity every 14 minutes or something, you know, (laughs) like, like you, like you see in the old stuff, but Wes Craven, like he, like not on Elm street, he never did that in in any of the screens. He never did that. And um, I love that he was trying to like, I don't know if he was trying to, but what I get is that he was graduating the slasher away from its exploitative roots, you know, and I really appreciate that. And it makes, it makes the audience, I think, focus more on um, the story than like the cool visuals or the the, i mean there there is gore in scream of course you know but um i don't know yeah i don't think it's to me it doesn't work without i mean you gotta have kevin williamson first to to write that in three days staying up in palm springs yeah that's fucking crazy (laughs) yeah i know but you but you definitely need um Wes craven at the helm and i think didn't kevin williamson he had actually adapted that drew barrymore sequence the first 12 minutes from a one-act play he had done in college i think if i remember correctly
2: i didn't know that Mm -hmm. um i'd like to ask one more question then do you guys want to end uh steven's time here with uh don't fear the reaper yeah sure Maybe. yeah go ahead so my question is uh it's long-winded um episode 204 it's called rising together paul Tremblay, john Langen, sarah Langen, victor laval livy llewellyn and L- larry baron um they mentioned you a lot steven and the uh-huh. whole point of that episode is for a group of people that rose up together in their career uh-huh. And um, I just kind of want to hear what basically they were. It, it was an hour, I think like an hour and a half. So mm-hmm. we the whole time we were just talking about basically what you need to survive if this if you're not a short timer. So I'm wondering what do you have anything to say about any of those people mentioned or if you have any words about how important it is to have a support a strong like a true friends support system Mm -hmm. no it is really nice
3: to have uh, um people to commiserate with and and really importantly people to say stay away from this editor stay stay away from that magazine or you know just to say yeah, i submitted i submitted a cemetery dance um five months ago too and we're, we're all waiting together for the acceptance or the rejection um but it's it's wonderful to have that and that to me is kind of what conventions deliver to us because they let us all hang out and talk after hours about that kind of stuff, you know? And yeah, I, th- I think it's vital for sure. Um,
2: yeah. Nice. Um, Brennan, and Erica, whoever wants to let's, let's dive into um don't fear the Reaper and the reason what, what we're promoting specifically with Steven is don't fear the Reaper paper bag version this is uh, the day of this episode's release. So it's mm-hmm. September 26, 2023. Uh, Brian or Erica? Erica, go ahead.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, I think I've asked about Jade, right? So Dark Mill South. Mm-hmm. He's kind of, it's perfect that you talked about um, Nightmare on Elm Street. Because like when I, like I was a teenager in the 80s and that was just like, what we watched and even though in some ways it doesn't stand the test of time, there's something compelling about the narrative and the, and the monster. But I think like he's, you know, Freddie's kind of like witty and funny and awful mm-hmm. and gross.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: And but I want to say Dark Mill South is a bit more like Jason, he's kind of silent and terrifying and hulking. Yeah. And I guess I, think I asked you this before, but I think for the purposes of this podcast, I think mm-hmm. it's it's relevant. What about that? Um, kind of monster scares you or compels you or just makes you want.
3: What can, what scares me about those type of um, bullies is that you can't negotiate with them. You know, like if if they don't if they don't speak, like Freddie, if you can get him talking, then maybe you can sneak away while he's waiting for a punchline to come. You know, but Jason. You can like even that dude who was a boxer in um which one was that? That was Manhattan. Yeah. Jason goes Jason goes, Jason takes Manhattan. That the dude who was a boxer who who could actually physically, it would seem, resist Jason. He doesn't even have a chance. He gets his head boxed off, you know. Um, you can't talk to Jason. It all you can do is scream. And when you scream, you I mean, I guess the purpose of screams, right? It, it kind of evolved in monkey societies where you alert the rest of the the um troop that there's danger, but in slashers, the scream generally serves to reduce you to a puddle of fear, just waiting to get macheted, you know. And um, that's that's the response you had to these big hulking pillars. That's why Michael Myers and Halloween kills, which in which he kind of is a Jason Voorhees type character, why he's able to take out that whole crew of fire firemen, you know, because um. He just doesn't stop, and that, that's scary. I think Freddie would have a much harder time coming out of that flaming house and Halloween kills, taking out that fire crew, because he'd be stopping to drop quips. <laughs> that, would, that would give people too much time, you know?
1: I like that. So in other words, like Jade and Dark Mill South are just great, I
3: mean, yeah.
1: perverse convenience, right? Because yeah. he's so unrelated. I definitely yeah. wouldn't know anything about unrelenting bullies you can't reason with. <laughs> um, that <laughs> that Jade gets this opportunity to really, you know, kick ass and like mm-hmm. and really look good doing it. So yeah, mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah. yeah.
3: But you know, I'd never thought of that. That's that's cool. That yeah, Jade Jade is very verbal with all her slasher stuff, and Dark Mill South is very nonverbal, but that's right. They are kind of a two sides of some sort of coin or something.
2: A good pair. Yeah. Yin and yang. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Brandon, what are your thoughts, buddy?
0: So a two part question. Um, when you, when you went to start on book two, I'm curious, Mm -hmm. you know, what kind of led you to do a little time jump. And on top of that, you know, when you, when you have a slasher sequel, you got to balance it to pay homage to the first one and bring Mm -hmm. back the people who dug the first one, but also give them something different. How did you kind of take that to task?
3: Yeah, you're totally right. You have to deliver the same, but different. And, um, and there's also a big tonal challenge with book twos of trilogies. Um, it, it's like start from Star Wars to Empire Strikes Back. That's that's the trick or um, Fellowship of the Ring to Two Towers. The, those both were just the same t- to me. And the trick is like with Chainsaw was a um a slow burn until the end, until you get to the big massacre, you know? And, and I knew that building Don't Fear the Reaper the same way was – that was a build that couldn't surprise an audience who had already seen that, you know? And so what I had to do with don't fear the reaper is hit the ground running and drop a body every 10 or 12 pages and try to do it worse and worse every time. And because it was a book too, I had the luxury of doing that because proof rock was already built. The characters were already introduced and I didn't have to slow down to say um, proof rock has been here since, you know, 1872 or, or whenever. And um that was, that was really nice. And I also, but structurally I had to also, deliver those intercut essays which like jade had done the slasher 101 so i had to do the same thing in don't fear the reaper and i do a similar thing in the third book too because some some things i think you if you set up a pattern in book one you are kind of locked in if you break that pattern too much the audience is going to call foul and it's really fun i love the challenge of coming up with different ways to do that and um but tonally I had to, like in any novel, you want a sense of redemption or victory at the end of it, whether it's a, you know, book book one, book 15, whatever, you want the dramatic line to be, um, the problem of the dramatic line to be answered at the end of the book, but you want the narrative not to be complete yet because the narrative arcs across the whole trilogy. So I had to find a way to um, pit Jade and Dark Mill South and, you know, the various antagonists all, all against each other, but leave the, like close off the dramatic line enough to be satisfying for a novel, but let the narrative still be on its arc to book three. And yeah, that, that was tricky. And it was especially tricky for a writer like me, because I had no idea where I was going. I was probably two thirds into the book before I was like, you know, I think this person will be the killer. Cause I don't, I don't know. You know, <laughs> I don't, I don't think about that kind of stuff. Um, it, But I take it as my lead Kevin Williamson again, because I was reading an interview somewhere where he says, when he was writing scream, the first draft, um, he realized maybe, I don't know. I don't, I'll probably get the number wrong. Maybe halfway through it that wait, Billy couldn't have been there doing killing this person because he was in jail or something like that. And he said, do I go back and fix that? Or is there another patch I can do? And there was another patch he could do, which was the truck stewing and make him the other killer, you know? And I love those. I love those kind of things. Like um, in one of Herschel Gordon Lewis's movies from the sixties, he, at, when they were in edits, they realized—I forget which one this is. Probably not Blood Feast. I don't know which one it is, but um, he realized that the his protagonist, his hero had worn his toupee for the first half of the film and forgot to wear it for the second half of the film, which is a big continuity error. People are going to notice that kind of stuff. And and so his fix wasn't to go back and do reshoots and they couldn't do digital stuff. Of course. So his, his excuse was, well, we'll just rig the story such that his brother came to replace him in the middle of the movie, you know, and I, I love those kind of make do tricks. They, they that's why I love slashers. When they go from um, the first installment to the second installment, it's, there's so much of that going on because no one builds the first one such that there's enough story left over for a second one. So like with Friday the 13th part two, that's why Cunningham and Savini weren't part of that because they they thought the story is told, but I love it when people have to, when a different team has to sift through the ashes of the first installment and find the slimmest, most gossamer little story thread Pull it up and weave it into a tapestry. I just love that. I love that, and it, it takes so many narrative backbends to get that done, and so many like um, I don't know, willful blindnesses on the reader's part too. <laughs> you know, I, I like that. Yeah.
0: So pros versus cons, um, and you touched mm-hmm. on a lot of these, so I'm kind of you know repeating your words, but mm-hmm. the advantage of a second book in a series is you've already built the world and you also don't have to tie all the threads in book 2 uh-huh. but at the same time you have to kind of do a standalone story uh-huh. that uh you know has a beginning and an end despite the fact that it leaves the door open uh uh-huh. cuz people you know even before people picked up don't fear the reaper they knew there was a third installment coming uh-huh. Uh-huh. so what's what's the what's the verdict do you i guess i would say if you uh had to pick, you know, one of the three books that was the most fun to write based on, you know, its place in the trilogy, what would you say?
3: Oh, that's a good question.
1: Hmm.
0: It's an obnoxious question. I don't know if it's (laughs) good. (laughs) Dare you.
3: (laughs) I think the third one was the most fun to write.
4: Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. But I, I like what you said. I hadn't thought of it like that. The, the second one leaves the door open. That's a, that's a really good way to phrase that, you know, that, that cuts my like three minute answer down to like five words or something. You know, that's a, that's a lot more efficient. <laughs> I'm here to help, man. So speaking <laughs> of
0: the third one, it's out in mm-hmm. March of uh, 2024. What mm-hmm. can you tell people about it?
3: Oh, uh, let's see. What can I say about it? Um, It's, it's for all the marbles, you know, it's, Return of the King had the big, the big battle at Minas Tirith, you know, and, and this has, well, maybe, maybe another way to say it is in my heart is a chainsaw that last probably, I don't know, 25%, the last quarter of the book is pretty much the, the massacre in the water and, and watching Jaws. And, um, I, I held that up as my standard for book three. I thought I've got to outdo that. And also I thought that was so stupid because I couldn't possibly think of anything more outrageous than that, but um, maybe I did. I don't know. And maybe it goes longer than 25% too. You know?
1: yeah, yeah. I think you should. We talked about jaws and Chuck Palnick in the same breath. And so maybe you should think of like shark club.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That'd be nice. That'd be really good. That's I like great. that. Yeah yeah, and, uh, Shark yeah, week. yeah yeah Yeah, or i should do like you did in in survivor is that in, yeah in survivor the pages of that novel are numbered backwards you know i remember i'd love to, i've always wanted to do that in one of my books it'd be neat to do that
2: in the third book so it's counting down to the end you know you're gonna confuse the shit out of someone hasn't go it hasn't gone to printing yet you could still make that happen they're right? gonna give Stephen a one star the book's numbers are wrong. um steven is this the is this the part where you want to Say goodnight or do you want to stick around another fifteen for Erica's thing? Either, I be,
3: I, yeah, I better, I better get out of here, man. I got.
2: Okay. Not a problem, dude. Not a problem. Um, thank you so much. We we've been thank wanting you. to talk to you for a long time, so it means a hmm. lot.
3: Yeah, no, it's great. And um, as leading to Erica, I think everyone should read White Horse. You know, it's re- it's really cool for me to read White Horse because I kind of live in the area where it all happens. You know, so it's Ooh. it's really really cool, man. And you have a blurb.
1: Thank you, Stephen. I owe debt to Stephen because, mm-hmm. as he, you know, really was writing more overtly horror horror books, right? Mm-hmm. I was like, you know, if he can nerd out, I can nerd out. It can be done. So <laughs> I, I very much appreciate modeling. So even if mine <laughs> is you. some weird version. So <laughs> thank
2: you, thank you for that, right. sir. Have a good. i will take it easy. Bye. Thanks for having me. Later, yeah. y'all. Yep.
4: Hi, I am Erica T. Worth, author of the indigenous literary horror uh, novel, White Horse, which is out now with Flatiron Macmillan. And it is about Carrie, who is an urban Indian woman who loves heavy metal and loves horror, but despises her mother because she believes that her mother abandoned her when she was two days old. And when her uh, her cousin Debbie discovers an ancient bracelet of her mother's and uh, Carrie touches the bracelet, um, her mother's ghost began to haunt Carrie, and a monster invades her dreams. And Carrie decides that she needs to find out what happened to her mother after all. Um, and some of the inspiration for this novel is urban Indian life in Denver, Colorado. And it's also just, you know, my love of heavy metal and horror, which was something where I went to school in Idaho Springs, people loved. And it's also a love song to old Denver.
0: Um, Erica, I got to tell you. Um... I don't get out to target a ton, but I absolutely love that every time I do um, I see copies of white horse kind of like on the shelf and uh, on the, you know, main display bays, not just kind of buried in the back, which is, and and it's been months too. You typically go to the big stores and the, you know, the rotation rotates as you will. Um, So it's, Whitehorse has gotten a tremendous response and you have the paperback coming out. Is it October 1st?
1: That's right. They moved it All to, right. to October for spooky season. So that's pretty cool.
0: No, the timing yeah, is I, perfect.
1: Yeah. I, I, it was, it was actually really lucky about that. So the whole target thing, flat, the flat team is really cool and proactive, but you know, target is a very like, you know, big consumer outlet, and they want, you know, book clubby books, and my book is an indigenous horror book, right? And, you, you know, you can see the ways it can be book clubby, but I, I have to say that I that felt really lucky because, I mean, I like to think it had something to do with the book, but it was certainly Flatiron selling it a certain way, um, because, you know, every time I go into Target, I get to see it, right? And that's just such a neat thing. I've, how many years have I been going to Target and seeing their books or their book club books? And, but the funny thing is it's always 30% off now because it's like months hmm. after the date. And I yep. always buy them as a business expense because if I go somewhere and I don't have any copies to sell, I can sell them and they're actually cheaper and easier to get them from my press. So I just, I buy them now.
2: <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'm always, and the cover art, the woman looks so much like me. Like every time I go through the line, yes, she does. I always think they're going to. Yeah, look, people have said that to me I'm glad you said that first,
2: because if I said it first.
1: <laughs> I, seriously, it's, it's uncanny. And I, you know, like, you're, you know, if you're an indigenous, like I had indigenous women on the cover of my books before when I published with small presses and I published realism. And people are like, oh, you look like, and I'm like, yeah, vaguely, I can see it, you know. But no, this one, I'm like, no, I do. And it's weird. It's I thought it was you
2: funny. in sunglasses. I really did. Yeah.
1: I you know, even the notes, it's super, it's just tremendously odd. So yeah, she and I need a DNA test.
0: (laughs) No, I think that, um, I think that we can all probably agree that a fair bit of publishing is publishing is a mixture of hard work and it's a lot of hard work and luck. And the reason I brought in, you know, the idea that, you know, when I, whenever I go to target months and months and months, I always see your book, you can, you know, hard work and luck can get it on the shelf, but what keeps it on the shelf is readers avid response. So I wonder, you know, it's been a little bit since we talked about the initial release of the book, how has the response been? Um, To my mind, it's been very, every time we bring it up, the person we bring it up to says, oh, my God, I love that. Uh, what's what's kind of been your reaction to oh, it? Wait,
2: wait. And Aaron drives. I got to throw that in there because I did want to get clarity after if he was friends with Erica or whatever. Not that, that would make a huge difference, but he, he barely ever spoke with you and he randomly brought your book up. Your books come up quite a few times.
1: Yeah, I, I really, you know, I think for me, what happened was Stephen and I are like, for example, very different writers, but and he's such an affable, unassuming guy, you know, clearly he's bright and he knows a ton. Um, but, you know, he also just published and published and published mainly real, realism with a dark theme, and eventually got to the big five and got to the New York Times bestseller list. And so similarly, I haven't published as much as he has. Um, but I published in a very similar vein and you know I did okay for an indie author and I you know was pleased but I think in the end I was never really in my proper nerd home like I just truly do love horror very different subject matter obviously than Stephen but I love I love the paranormal I love that 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 darkness on a more visceral real level right and so um I like to think and I also learn more about structure like I really studied that, like on the nuts and bolts level. It was like I am failing here, and I need to understand it better. And once I did, once I had that toolbox, I feel like that helped as well. But yeah, it's done really well. I think it sold on all formats, because it was like a target book of the month, it was a New York Times editors pick. Um, I was on Good Morning America, right, which was mind blowing. Mm. And um, I, I sold somewhere in all formats, like about 50,000 books, which honestly, for a debut is when a lot of them sell 200, even with the big presses or 2000, I am beyond pleased. I mean, no, I didn't make a bestseller list, but, you know, I think that was just because it was like over time it built, you know what I mean? So I, I couldn't be happier. And I have, a, I just, uh, I sold the next novel on what's called spec, which I never thought I'd be able to do. In other words, like first hundred pages and the, and the concept and Flatiron wanted it. And I finished it the other day and um, gave it to my agent and who's going to give it to the editor. Yeah, it's called Room Nine Hundred Four. So, like, I feel like you know, I I I'm still very proud of White Horse. It seems like people love it. I can just randomly come across TikTok where people are talking about it. I think that's really cool. And you know, I can't wait to to keep going with the next one. Wow,
2: fifty thousand. Um, yeah, that's nothing to sneeze at. Like that is fucking crazy. That's a lot of people. Like we take high numbers. I think it's worth just pausing on this for a second because like nowadays we think in views of terms and likes and all that shit and nothing really, I don't know about you guys. I'm speaking for myself, but nothing really is like impressive because we've seen people, so many people get millions of views. Now, you know, you're thinking in terms of like, I listened to, I forget what song was on YouTube music. It was a song that was played over 5 billion times. I'm like, holy shit. But 50,000 is a fuck load. Just count to 50,000. See in five weeks, you know, or whatever it is. This is it's a lot. Yeah. It's a no, big like, number. That's a lot of books.
1: I mean, look, you had Karen Slaughter on the other day, and I loved so much what you have to say. She's so interesting. And yeah. she has sold like 40 million. Okay. Yeah. So my 50,0 is a drop in the bucket. But look, I in some ways, even though I published books before, this was in many ways my debut. And I feel like for a debut, it would be, you know, pretty damn good. So
0: Yeah, absolutely. I would agree with that yeah absolutely. and uh as as anyone who works with the public can attest to, uh people need to read more books, so fifty thousand is damn <laughs> good. um I would also say you know you you drop that, you know, whether it's two hundred or two thousand, it really is the feeling of somebody choosing to spend their free time when there's Netflix and there's Hulu and there's Disney plus and there's Amazon Prime. Somebody choosing to spend their time with your book—it's—it's it's a blessing every time. Um, and for two thousand or fifty thousand people to do it—that's you know outstanding. Now, when we have you on to promote the hardcover, you can get away with "this is new" and you know let's talk about this. But now it's the paperback. Now you got to give us a, just a little bit more about what's next.
1: Oh, you mean like the next book? Yeah.
0: Oh yeah. Yep.
1: Yeah, yeah. So Room 904 is, I mean, in some ways, I kind of tried to do a little bit of, in regards to what I did, but do something entirely new. Because in other words, so people who, who read White Horse, they're like, okay, this is this is more of what I like. But I didn't want them to be like, and it's exactly the same. So Room 904 is about a woman who she was finishing her PhD in psychology. And her sister calls her her sister has been, you know, in rehab, She's kind of joined this cult. Um, the sister doesn't realize like how you know, deep she's in it. And her sister and mo- her mother have always been like, oh, I see ghosts, I whatever. And the, the main character is like, I do not, and sure, mom, sure, sister, whatever. So she's kind of drunk. She's finished her PhD, it's graduation night. And her sister calls her and she's like, I'm in the Brown Palace, which is a hotel in Denver. And if you don't get over here, I'm gonna die. And she's like, you're ridiculous, I'm drunk, come here. And she hangs the phone and later that night her sister appears to her and she realizes her sister is dead, she did die, and this turns on, if you will, these paranormal abilities that are absolutely overwhelming, right? Um, and so she, her academic career is destroyed and she decides to start this paranormal um, business simply because she can't, and her academic career is destroyed in this situation. So um, they, the Brown Palace calls her and they're like, you know what, you should come in. Uh, we we have a problem and we need you to to solve it. And she sees that it's her sister now has replaced this other ghost and she is haunting the Brown Palace. And they're like, yeah, and in two weeks, um, every five years, you know, someone checks in and, two, and three weeks later, well, there's three weeks, they die. And she's like, I don't want to have anything to do with this. My sister's in here. This is just too much for me. But then her mother checks in and she's like, in three weeks, my mother will die if I don't solve this crime. So she decides to solve it.
2: That sounds cool. So I'm getting like
0: ring vibes almost. Yeah, right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> Rings. One of my favorite films. Like I, that's just my thing. And um, I definitely, I put a clock in there cause I just love that idea. I just love the whole idea of a clock. So I have like the three weeks, you know, always thought that was cool.
2: Yeah. Yeah, time bomb, countdown. Um, do the pages in reverse, the numbers, I meant, not the actual pages. What if you did remember that Seinfeld episode where they got a friend that married in uh India? Oh, that's
0: my least favorite episode. Yeah, right.
2: (laughs) (laughs) They played every scene backwards and it was like twenty minutes before, an hour before. That shit got confusing, man. Yep.
1: There's always a way to do something like memento, right? The memento structure. And the, if you remember that film, and I do admire that stuff, but I think I'm more like, okay, how to make forward motion go? That's kind of where I'm at now, but maybe <laughs> something.
0: So yeah. I live in the land of go, go, go forward. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Really, I am. Yeah. I've just learned how to do that. I, you know, I honestly, without traditional structure, I would just be like a, a mess. So. <laughs>
2: yep. Do you want to jump into currently reading? Let's do it. Yeah. Erica, what are you currently uh, reading?
1: Well, I was listening actually to Talking Scared and he, you know, Neil was talking about how he wants to do um, an episode where he has two people who've never read the Dark Tower series and then just to have them read it and get the reaction. I don't know how he's going to get somebody who hasn't ever read that to read that because it's this big yeah um i was like man i remember loving the dark tower series when i was a kid but what happened was i went to college and they like farmed it out of right they were like no nerd you're not allowed to like your nerd stuff if you want to be a real writer and so i was like okay as stubborn as i was i that's how i ended up reading and writing mainly realism so obviously i'm i'm back there and i was like okay and i'd reread the gunslinger recently which is very turgid and very um I don't know if I call it postmodern bright, but it's like heavy with language and the story's is compelling. That's not what's first. And mm. so I kind of stopped. And then Neil was saying, you know what? That's not indicative of the whole series. And I was like, yeah, that's right. So what's funny is I bought the whole thing. Sorry, my dog is scratching to get out.
4: Oh, I bought the whole it's
1: thing. Fine. You, can't buy. I just, <laughs> um, you can't buy, like I, I love, I will buy physical books. I have obviously don't fear the reaper. But um, I have a lot on Nook, and so I was going to buy the whole thing on, on Nook. You can't buy, you can't do it. Like you can't buy it as a series on Nook. So I decided hmm. to buy the whole thing in paperback, and it's like a super nerd delight, and I'm just loving it because if I'm honest with myself, I love horror and I love science fiction, and I love fantasy, but it's dark fantasy that I'm where I'm really at, and so that's that's um, I'm in the middle of, of I think the third book right now, and I'm just i i Uh, so that's a good one yeah
0: blaine is a pain he is indeed um you know i always think of the gun. like i like the gunslinger i do but i totally get what you're saying um it always makes me think of when i'm writing a book and i write like a first chapter or a prologue And then I end up going back later and saying, this is me trying to figure out what the book is supposed to do and then cutting it and incorporating the parts into what comes later. Like that's what the gunslinger reminds me of. It's, it's, it's an introduction that's not indicative of what you're getting in the rest of the series.
1: Yeah. The weird part for me is that I have to remind myself that I, he wrote it after Carrie and Carrie is nothing like it. Right. It's, it's, very like what people call window pane language, story forward. Um, whereas a gunslinger is, I guess, his his moment where he's like, "Let's go back to college and be fancy." Um, yep. But what's funny is he went back and said, "Right, I wanna, I wanna rewrite that thing um, a little bit so it's not so turgid." But obviously, he gave up at a certain point because he was like, "That's just what it is. It's what it was." Yep. But yeah, I, I'd forgotten some of my most distinct memories as a child are sitting there in my room reading The Dark Tower. And you know, hmm. so, that whole series. That's- and I, no, I have a you know?
0: I, I will be curious upon revisit, although you can certainly answer me now. My favorite in the series is Wizard and Glass, and I feel like that generally tends to be people's either favorite or least favorite. Where do, you know, from your memory, where do you come in on Wizard and Glass?
1: Well, <laughs> um... I don't remember. I remember, I remember it's like rereading the second one. I'm like, okay, I remember that. I remember that scene. I remember the scene. Um, and I'm reading the third one and I don't remember any of it really. So wow. Wizard of Glass is obviously the big boy. Um, so we'll see. I, I don't even remember what I remember. That's the yeah, interesting just- part about it. <laughs>
0: Um, I'm going to jump in next. I am about halfway through Becoming the Boogeyman by Richard Chismar. Uh, It's the follow-up to Chasing the Boogeyman, which he put out maybe two years ago. Um, And it's this interesting mix of fiction and true crime where he writes himself into the narrative uh, (laughs) kind of sorry, Erica, if there's spoilers here, but you did read the book, the, the Dark Tower series at some point, but where uh, King writes him into himself into the narrative. Chismar does that here. And I remember loving the first one. It's been a couple of years since I read it, Chasing the Boogeyman. But um, it was just so original. Nobody else was really doing anything like that where it was, you know, we know it's fiction, but it just reads like this true crime book. There's photos in it. There's everything that you would have in a true crime book. And this one reads like, an absolute sequel like just picks up where the last one left off uh talks about you know the first book and the first book being you know made into a hypothetical movie um it's really cool and i'm super excited to talk to rich about that um couple that i have not started yet but i'm about to jump into the reformatory by tenanori of do which we who we will be talking to in early october and Great. Not forever, but for now, by Chuck Polinick, uh, who we will also be talking to in early October. Uh, Patrick, oh, I'm going to throw it to you.
2: I'm in between books. Um, I'm about to start becoming the boogeyman, so I don't have anything interesting to add. Um, on that end, so Are let's, go-
1: I'm in the boogeyman.
2: <laughs> yeah, check out
0: the first one, and uh, if it, if it, strikes your fancy, then absolutely be on the lookout for the second one, which I believe comes out October tenth. Um, because it, it really does read as, hey, if you liked the first one, the second one is absolutely gonna be up your alley.
1: Uh, yeah, I I this looks it definitely I like a little bit of postmodern, right? If it's just yeah. too much that I'm like, that's just to me, <laughs> something's really overtly that way it's better in the short form. Cause it's like a magic trick. Yeah. And in the end you're performing a little magic trick, but if you're just kind of doing it again and again, like it takes the magic out of it. So I kind of feel that way about postmodernism, but if it's got like a, just one little fun trick, I'm in. you know?
0: Yeah. And you know, the, the first one was really original and it was, this one's not going to break the mold because we've seen it before, but it's almost kind of like, Hey, you guys dug the first one. Like, let's just keep the ride going. Um, and it's, it's funny because even though I think they came out maybe six months, eight months apart, but Daniel Krause's, uh the ghost that ate us kind of did the same thing. And it was, it was like, even though they came out, you know, not at the same time, they were definitely being composed at the same time. So it wasn't like a ripoff, but, and they, and they had that kind of, this is fiction, but it's going to read like, this is something that really happened. Uh, uh, Krauss's book was about a um the the case of a poltergeist that inhabited a fast food restaurant um again pictures news articles all kinds of real- life things uh put into fiction that drew you in and just kind of assisted the narrative as you went along
1: I do have in night room 904 I have a bunch of like rewritten eBay and there's a you now you can buy like ghost hunting material. Like mm-hmm. I rewrote a bunch of that, that and put like that throughout. So I suppose that's sort of postmodern I love those
0: sprinkles, you know, you know if you like yeah, have yeah. the narrative and just the occasional interruption by news articles or you know online spreadsheets, whatever it is, you know.
1: Yep, me too.
2: Erica, do you have any final <laughs> thoughts?
1: Yeah, I thank you for having me. I appreciate you letting me like do a tail end on Steven's you
2: know show. You know so sure. I I very appreciate it. Yeah. that worked that worked out in so many of course we wish we had Candace here but it worked out in so many so many levels so that's really cool. So that, my final thoughts were thank you for being here thank you for for to Steven uh Brennan.
0: Uh thank thank you to Steven even though he's not here to hear it. Um absolutely a blast, you know, I wish we had got him on sooner but better late than never. Um Erica, thank you for coming because we contacted you like six hours ago and said, "Would you like to guest host?" <laughs> and you made time for us on your uh, Monday night. Um, and yeah, that's what I've got.
2: All
1: right. Yeah, uh, I, I loved it. I Stephen is always an easy guy to talk to because, as different as we are, we kind of have the same like realm in which we circle. And so, and I saw him just yesterday at the Boulder Bookstore. So, and I was really thankful he was there because it was this sort of. Big kind of loose event. And I was like, oh Jesus Christ, I hope Steven's here because I'll know somebody. And he <laughs> was.
2: <laughs> that's awesome. Next episode is 210, Hot Iron, Cold Blood. Me and Brandon are going to be the two panelists. Uh Candace and Robert O'Tone are gonna take over as hosts. So that's new. I don't know how they're gonna run the show. That's part of the fun. Uh we're gonna be joined by Brianna Morgan drew huff and ronald kelly did i get that right brian
0: <laughs> uh, you i i'm honestly not sure okay nailed it. <laughs> let's
2: just say yes <laughs> as always you have many choices in podcasts don't forget to buy don't fear the reaper and white horse and paperback oh that's not the line thanks for choosing us and those books <laughs>